And so that's why the sibling condition of those relationships, not only in the empathy and perspective gaining that you talked about, that's so important, but in then the possibility to either really bless each other or really hurt each other and alter significantly our identity, our peace, our trust, our vulnerability and relationships going forward, even in the romantic realm, is significant. That's why we're dedicating a podcast to a sibling wound like we did with a father wound and a mother wound. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril here with my co-host, Pastor Elliot Anderson. And Love and Life is your place to hear conversations grounded in psych research, psychotherapy, and biblical truth to help us thrive in love and life. Today, we're continuing our series on woundedness. And in particular, in this case, we're talking about siblings and the dynamics there in the sibling unit, also how that relates to the family of origin in general, and how from time to time, and I guess, to be honest, it's inevitable that there will be some sort of woundedness. And Elliot has looked at some research to discuss why in particular and in what areas siblings tend to wound one another. And then, of course, we're going to weave that into our current relationships and how our past experiences with our siblings and our current experience with our siblings as adult interactions remain a part of our dynamics and our experience. These relationships do, in fact, impact and influence our romantic relationships. So for anyone who doesn't know, my master's is in clinical psychology. So that's where Elliot and I share a common academic background because counseling psych and clinical psych are very similar. That's where you learn how to be a therapist. But then my PhD is in developmental psychology. So this is a particularly interesting topic for me and one that I looked over quite a bit during my doctoral work. And historically in developmental psych, we focus on parents and their influence on children. And of course, your parent child relationship absolutely impacts your current day living, no question. And there's been an enormous amount of research in that domain. There has been less research looking at that sibling bond and those sibling dynamics. And for anyone who's interested in parenting, we have addressed that on Love and Life, and we will do so again in the future. But two episodes that are really critical are from Dr. Leonard Sachs, episodes 33 and 34. 33 is called, I Just Want My Kids to Be Happy and Other Flawed Parenting Ideals. And Dr. Sachs continues in episode 34, American Parenting, Why It's So Hard But Doesn't Have to Be. Another key episode on parenting came a couple episodes later in episode 37 with Dr. Brad E. Sachs, Emptying the Nest, Young Adults Living at Home, and that what we're seeing a lot nowadays with some of the 20-year-olds having a hard time launching. So if anyone is in the throes of the parenting and wants some support in that realm, please refer to those episodes. But again, back to siblings now. Elliot and I took a look at the literature. I want to start with my studies, Elliot, because I think what you found is a nice segue from the research in general to current day application. I found two studies. One was done by researchers at the University of Calgary. And one of their findings was, Although it's assumed that older siblings and parents are the primary socializing influence on younger siblings' development, but not vice versa, we found that both younger and older siblings typically contributed to each other's empathy over time. 
So that's an interesting finding right there because again, as I spoke to you earlier, we tend to think parents influence children and then maybe sure an older brother, older sister would be the role model in the family. They would also influence the younger siblings. But the youngest, I'm happy to inform everyone that we also influence y'all. And Elliot as a middle, so apparently you did have an impact on Warren. I'm going to share, you want to go ahead? No, it's okay. I was going to say something funny. Go ahead. (laughs) I was going to say, if I don't get to talk soon, I'm going to have a sibling wound. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> I'm just trying to lay the foundation. No, it's good. It's good. I just, you know me, I can't remember stuff as well as you. So I think at one point and then oops, I'm gone. Then I'm going to go ahead. Keep going. All right. The other research study I found is called the effect of siblings on children's social skills and perspective taking is related to empathy. In the developmental literature, we talk about that egocentrism that two-year-olds have. That's why they pitch fits and throw tantrums. And the ability to for a two-year-old to start to cultivate, and it's very rare with children that young, start to have the ability to take another's perspective. And that's essentially the definition of empathy. I can step out of my own perspective vantage point and look at how this experience or the situation would feel like from your vantage point. So one thing they found, which is a little problem because I have two brothers, they found that girls without a sibling had greater perspective taking than girls with brothers in particular. Mm. So I don't know what you people were doing to me (laughs) to cause me not to have as much empathy and perspective taking. I don't know. We'll discuss this in a moment. And But boys with brothers seem to benefit somewhat from their presence. So Warren helped you have a better perspective-taking ability. As far as social skills go, it was observed that children with a younger sister compared to only children had better social skills. You're welcome. Now you can talk. (laughs) I can talk. (laughs) Man, I went full professor mode, didn't I? You did. That was good stuff. (laughs) And kind of a little bit of a summary in the pragmatic counseling field then, since we're talking about a sibling wound, is you established very clearly with your own background and with the research, in particular over the last 15, 20 years, psychologists understand now that the sibling bond is almost as primary and influential as the parental bond. And it's now grouped into the primary origin bonds. And so that's why the sibling condition of those relationships, not only in the empathy and perspective gaining that you talked about that's so important, but in then the possibility to either really bless each other or really hurt each other and alter significantly our identity, our peace, our trust, our vulnerability in relationships going forward, even in the romantic realm, is significant. That's why we're dedicating a podcast to a sibling wound like we did with a father wound and a mother wound. What I've seen then in my practice for so long is how often a sibling wound is kind of uncovered almost accidentally. As we're talking about family of origin things and the father wound, mother wounds are normally fairly known by clients when they're coming in, especially if they came to us through the podcast talking about father wound or mother wound. But when we start to talk about all the family dynamics and the relationships involved, these sibling wounds can come out. And so if we're defining the bond as a relationship that affirms you, respects you, cherishes you, protects you, keeps you safe, informs you, educates you, provides environmental context for you, and any of those things are kind of greatly not there or in fact on the opposite. Rather than being encouraged and given hope by these relationships, you're shamed and hurt, sometimes intentionally, whether you were trying to be developed and instead were you know, diminished. That's what 
we say then clinically, psychologically creates a wound. So the research that you were quoting and some of the stuff I studied as well, and then just the experience I've had with different clients over the last year and a half, it's just like it's been opening up a whole new window for me for healing, growth, development, and content. As you say that, what strikes me, as I spoke earlier, developmental psychologists focusing so heavily on parenting, of course, is appropriate. People want to be the best parents possible, and people want to heal from their parenting wounds. And the only way we do that is to understand the research and understand the dynamics. But focusing so heavily on parenting has really missed the mark in the sense that this massive influence that we experience, and only children have a massive experience that's very different, but they still not having siblings could be an impact for them and influence for them. By not looking at this, people don't even have the eyes to see, oh, wait, maybe some of the pain I'm experiencing right now in my current life is related to sibling relationships. People won't even think about that possibility unless we start having these conversations. Yeah, Karen, you might remember I've been teaching in my classes because I think you were in the class where I started to develop this back in 1990. You don't have to go there. You don't have to date us like that. 30 years or so where I'd give these warning signals for couples and to learn and understand what to look for in their romantic partner that is going great and might be encouraging for fluent influence in the future. And then what is a warning sign. And one of the things I've always stated, and this was without any research or even looking, this was just practical from my own experiences, well, watch how your partner treats their siblings, because that's the closest context to long-term roommates. So watch how they treat their siblings, what that relationship dynamic looks like, especially the cross-gender ones. And then also, of course, their roommates in their dorms or whatever else, if they're living on campus, that experiential day-by-day connection. I was with a couple last week doing their first premarital session, and they've been friends for like a decade. And when I asked them, hey, what things do you think is going to create different relational context for you, which you want me to help explore with you as we do this premarital work together? And they said, oh, by far, living together, just being in the same space, the same proximity. And both of them have some challenges with sibling relationships where being in the home and sharing space and sharing possessions has been very difficult with some wounding. So it's just another example how these things correlate or associate. I really appreciate you sharing those real world experiences from the couples you work with. It just helps flesh out our conversations. I want to share a little bit about Magic Mind. Our community knows that a holistic approach to mental and physical health is a core value of love and life. And as you and I often talk about, we are both extremely random and we both struggle to focus and tackle issues in an efficient manner. So for me, for years, I've relied on my morning coffee to kick off my day and get me going. And until recently, I would have like four to five cups per day, but I started to find that so much coffee would end up upsetting my stomach, probably the acid. And plus, like a lot of us, I find that if I drink coffee too late in the afternoon, I end up struggling to get to sleep at night. And this is where Magic Mind comes in. It's a little shot of completely natural ingredients, which not only help dial in our attention span, but also help with stress and anxiety. One of the ingredients that Magic Mind has is matcha, which you guys have probably heard about. There's like a lot of matcha information going around right now for good reason, because matcha extends the benefits of caffeine 
by slowing down your body's ability to absorb caffeine, which prevents the spike in cortisol levels and the inevitable crash that comes from ingesting too much caffeine. Matcha is basically nature's extended release version of caffeine. And as you also know, we're always excited to talk about ways to level up in love and life without resorting to medications. So we hope that you will check out Magic Mind at www.magicmind.co slash love life. That's www.magicmind.co slash love life, L-O-V-E-L-I-F-E. And when you head over, please be sure to use promo code lovelife20 for 20% off your purchase. And we want to thank you in advance for supporting our sponsors. It's one of the ways that you empower us to keep bringing you content that we hope enriches your life. So now, Elliot, let's talk about that TED Talk episode. And you wrote down some notes, which I think were really key. And like I said, they really provide a nice segue to facilitate this conversation. So this was by Jeffrey Kluger, and he's the author of The Sibling Effect. He's a senior writer for Time Magazine, and also he's been an editor-at-large for Time. So this is something that's really a passion point for him, obviously, to write an entire book about it and then do a TED Talk. It's also based on his life with three brothers. So he was the second of four brothers, and so he gives a lot of great experiential stories about their context. And they had an alcoholic father who was quite tough. And so these siblings kind of bonded together to protect Mm -hmm. each other as brothers. Mm. And he's very clear on his TED talk that they weren't abused. It was just a different and a different style of discipline and a Mm -hmm. father who had some struggles. So he talks quite a bit about that and just talking about that context, how the brothers united together. Yeah. Second son. That's going to be like an Alfred Adler vibe, I'm thinking. Yeah. I would agree. Those are normally way more effective in relationships than... Sure, first sons, of course, because the Absolutely. first one's like the guinea pig and the parents make all the mistakes with that one. Yeah, they, they feel all right. that pressure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, good. God, we got that established. So some of the points that he made in the TED Talks, the sibling bond is the longest lasting of all primary relationship bonds. And of course, that would be because your primary relationship with your parents, they're probably going to pass away sooner than your siblings. And so you're going to do life from birth to death Should you be blessed to have a long life together? And because you're all within the same age range, pretty much, you do that lifelong primary bond with your siblings, not your parents. Yeah. And whether you choose to stay in relationship or not, they're still your sister or brother forever. Yep. Even if you cut them off. Right. So I've I've known you for 50 some years. I've known my wife for 35. Yeah. So yes, they're much different relationships, but I've still known you longer. And you've known the fullness of me all those years good, bad, and indifferent, right? By the time I married my wife, 22 years old, much different person, not much different identity and movement. That's just one example of that context. Yeah, and you mentioned the second point would be, you mentioned this a moment ago, the sibling bond has the same wounding capacity as other primary bonds. And I think it bears repeating because as I said, if we don't recognize that, we could be doing our introspection and trying to understand what's going on with friendship relationships, work relationships, and certainly romantic relationships. And we could be stuck because that aspect of our family of origin, we're really not shining a light on that. 
And where I've seen this, Karen, in a couple very specific cases, which you and I have talked about offline quite a bit, some young women have recognized that rather than trying to recapitulate the relationship with their father for healing by the men they're choosing, they are actually recapitulating a relationship with an older brother. Sure. Who had significantly damaged or hurt or wounded them or kind of left the family. And that started this conversation you and I had a year and a half ago or whatever when we start talking through this a little bit. And as a youngest with two older brothers, I can say that not only was our father just a massive presence and just larger than life individual, just was, also incredibly impactful dad because he was very opinionated and he, he was passionate. If he believed something, you were going to know about it. You were going to hear about it. And we have assumed some of that too. That's why we get on a podcast every week and because we're passionate about things and we believe that they're important. And then we want to share that with others. So having dad be such a powerful and profound influence in my life, but also you and Warren for sure. And so even those years that I was single much longer than I wanted to be looking back. And even actually during that time, I remember thinking to myself, it makes sense because by the time that I was single in my thirties, you were already ordained by God. And so you were a wonderful husband and Warren's a wonderful husband. And dad was a wonderful husband and provider. And I think that was in a sense, the bar was set pretty high. Mm -hmm. And so I see that as a blessing, but I can also see why it took me a while. Because when you see that modeled for you, you know what it, it looks like to be cherished and honored and respected as a woman and as a wife. You've seen it and you're not going to settle for anything less. And so I feel like that was a blessing, but also maybe perhaps was part of my long stay in the single world. Yeah, it could have impacted timing for sure. Uh, and I think that makes sense to me systemically even in the sibling context, that you were going to need a man who was strong, passionate, intelligent, athletic, musical. You had a wide variety of things you were going to need to pack in there. Right. And and Dan does fulfill those. Yeah. Right. So we looked at that now systemic and say, wow, maybe it took a while, but then the right kind of match happened. And so I, I talked to several of these ladies about that sibling wound and simply identifying it for them was significant. Sure. And in two particular cases I'm thinking about, the older brothers kind of left family systemic early. One did it in a very poor way. One did it in kind of in a healthy individuation way, but both chose to completely remove themselves from the family dynamic. Now, I think I don't know either man, but I would bet both of them would tell me, this is how I had to become who I am. This is how I had to get my freedom and autonomy. Not unlike our father did from his own family of origin, and then didn't talk to his brother for 12 years, things like that, right. where he had to leave. He felt in his spirit, his soul, he had to leave and remove himself. But both younger sisters were greatly impacted by these decisions. And I think influenced one in a marital context, one in a dating context, significantly their choices. Right. When they felt that separation, that's a significant wound for a, a young woman to feel that masculine brother, older brother just departed. Total abandonment. Yep. And I don't think it would be so dissimilar. I do think the father abandonment would be maybe a deeper wound, but Kluger's saying maybe not. Because I think if you or Warren had taken off and just abandoned the family, I would have taken that totally personally. I'd have been like, yep. you don't love me enough. Even if it's a totally a personal thing, I got to go because I got to find out who I am. I got to become the man I'm meant to be. But that massive cutoff, 
that it also very... changes birth order roles and rights. Yep. So both ladies were second born and now had to rise into a firstborn kind of role with their other siblings. Yep. And that leads to some bitterness and frustration as well. Now, both ladies are really administratively sharp and strong and kind of naturally went right into that role, but it doesn't mean that's the way the context of the family dynamic was supposed to be. Yeah. When the oldest abdicates, then someone has to yeah. step up. So both these ladies have been involved with what is often seen as rescuing or salvation style dating or marriage, trying to believe the best in these guys and almost want them to restore this abandonment, but it ends up kind of repeating those patterns and they're choosing men who are not there, not available, and who often avoid and withdraw and isolate as well. And it's a classic recapitulation, which we talk about typically with a mother wound or a father wound. But in this case, the adult woman says, I will pick someone who's emotionally available, has that kind of abandonment energy, and I will choose to be in partnership with that person. And I will get them to stay. I will get them to love me. I will get them to commit to me. And in that way, it will somehow emotionally repair the abandonment that my brother left on me. Yeah, and tend to see those guys in a lens of naive, false positivity. Mm. I don't, you know, I'm all about positivity, so I don't want to shame them for being positive and like, hey, I believe in the best version of this person, this guy, right. that's great. Yeah. But when they're telling me then experientially all the things that happen over and over and over again that show this isn't healthy, Mm -hmm. This isn't right. He's not valuing, cherishing you, encouraging you, inspiring you. It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. And you're carrying him and he's getting completely codependent. Then you can tell then, okay, it's though your desire is pure and your, right. your want is pure. The relationship is not, we're recapitulating a wound and it will not end well. No, it makes some sort of logical sense. You can see where yeah. that dynamic would be compelling to someone. It would seem like this would be a way to make peace with this woundedness. And again, on a, probably a subconscious level, but it never works. And it no. does just, the cycle continues. And now we're reinforcing that abandonment because you've chosen partnership with someone who's emotionally unavailable and will continue to abandon you and reject you and hurt you because of their own mess, not because of you. But then we've reinforced that identity of I get rejected, I am, I get abandoned. And I rarely see the family system, regardless of how unhealthy or healthy it is, receive these recapitulated relationships into the family dynamic. You would think like, well, if there's been an abandonment from a son and another man comes in that has some similar traits or temperament personality, that might be a nice fit or a nice replacement. But I think it's the opposite. It's a reminder and a rewound for the parents as well or the siblings sure. as well. Like, no, this, this guy's just like our brother. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. You can't trust him. He's not going to be a man of his word. You know, he's still addicted or whatever. Any, any of those kind of things I've seen over the last couple of years, yeah. rebounding, responding that way. I, I am starting to believe that the sibling wound is, I'm not going to say it's as significant as the father-mother wounds, but it is just below it. I think you and Kluger are on the same page then. And I know you mentioned you're interested in reading his book, and I am too, because I'd like to really go into more depth with this. And I think as we've been talking about as well, in developmental psych, there's been a bit of a blind spot. And from your clinical work and from what the research that we're seeing, it needs to be a blind spot that is removed because we're really missing some of the key developmental variables and factors if we are minimizing the impact of the sibling relationship. Yeah. So to concretize it right away, Karen, to use one of your favorite words, 
<laughs> if any of our listeners are maybe identifying now for the first time, because it's not something talked about, right? man, I, I think I do have a little bit of a sibling wound. And so for a, a lot of young people and yourself included, Karen, if siblings, and I'm talking about myself, if siblings intentionally hurt us over and over and over again, or knock on your door, you open it, I slap you in the face or pull your hair and take you to the floor or something. That's not, those, those incidents where I was abusing you were not in the dynamic of a fight already, right? If we were arguing about something and then children fight and then all of a sudden they break out into something and some of those were just me not knowing to do with my anger and attacking you. So yes, you've forgiven me and I've asked for forgiveness and we've healed that. But that recognition again, that those wounds are significant. If you don't talk about them, don't heal from them, don't allow them to be recognized, understood and, and healed from, they will perpetually find their way into your relationships. And so you could have been looking for guys unintentionally that would hurt you in some capacity because that felt somewhat normalized by your brother closest to you in age. I'm not saying you did. I'm just saying you could have, and we could have systemically looked at it as a couple of clinicians and said, oh, there could be a little bit of that where, yes, Elliot turned the corner and became a godly man and a godly brother, but it, for a long period of time, he was not. I'm trying to help heal these other guys so they can find the same path to redemption my brother did. I'm not saying that happened. I'm just saying it could have systemically made some sense. It could have. I think that as you were speaking, I was thinking what was the element that changed? And I think because we were able to have high school, even positivity you were senior, yes, as a before freshman, I left. Yep. So we, we had, because throughout high school, so now, like I said, you were a senior, I was a freshman, but you were by high school, you were starting to straighten things out. Yep. So there was about four years before you took off for college that were good. Yeah, and you exactly. Were nice. We started and we had some separation, which helped. And you said nice things to me, finally. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> I, and by the time I was senior, I did feel a desire to protect you as yeah, much you could, you became as a desire protective. to poke at you, which is right. appropriate masculine behavior in a sibling relationship. I'm just being honest with our listeners so they recognize that yeah. we have lived through some of this as well. Mm -hmm. And to help encourage our listeners, they're recognizing this for the first time. And there is a reasonable relationship with that sibling now. It wouldn't be bad to bring this context back up and just make sure there's forgiveness and healing or just recognize, wow, I have grown through this. So if I'm still having some repetitive relational issues with current boyfriends or girlfriends, maybe I should look at my sibling dynamic and see if there is some woundedness there mm -hmm. that I need to address, just like we did when we talked about father wounds and mother wounds. We'd love to connect with you further via our weekly newsletter. Joining the Love & Life family gets you first access to bonus content and flash sale pricing for books and consultations. And when you sign up, you'll receive Karen's Empowered Dating Playbook or my Empowered Marriage Playbook. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com to join the Love & Life family. Yeah, and this leads to another point from the TED Talk. And the sibling bond is fraught with comparison, competition, and then also companionship. So I guess fraught would be a negative. So the comparison and competition could be tough. But companionship is also just a massive element. You are thrown into the car together for road trips. You are forced to go to I credit the fact that I'm a big sports fan because I had to watch you and Warren with three sports a year and then you do select soccer in the summer. There was like no beating it. I had to join it. I, like there was no yeah. fighting that. So you have this intense companionship that you don't have even with your best friends growing up. And yeah, the, the comparison and competition is different for you having a brother. That's a different 
type of comparison because then I show up and I'm tiny princess and there's no other girl to compare to. So there's those dynamics. So that comparison will be different based on the genders of each kid. And so a lot of different ways this can work itself out. Yeah. Kluger talks about one point I didn't put in the notes I wanted to throw out. He talks about you got to look at the relationships in the family and there's separate dyads for all the partnerships. Right. So it's me and dad, you and dad, Warren and dad. That's four different relationships. Yep. Then we talk about the mother and then those are four separate. Mm -hmm. Then we talk about the the sibling dynamic. and, And so by the time you get done, that's where he's talking about the automatic competition and comparison, even if it's completely subconscious and underneath the surface. The companionship simply comes because you're living in the same house, the same space. And that's why Kluger in his research has talked about the things that the kids' siblings fight about the most are possessions and space. Everybody's trying to carve out their own niche, their own identity. I think he was talking psychologically as well as physically. Everyone's trying to get their own possessions, their own identity, their own psychological space and breathing. And for you and I, since we gave some examples of the negativity of me attacking you and things, we also did play together a lot and would often have a lot of fun times despite my anger issues and attacking you at times. And so we did have the companionship positivity as well as the competition and comparison. And I do remember feeling many, many times, I want mom and dad to be as happy and positive about me as they are Karen. Hmm. Right. I, I felt it. I knew it was a long way away, but I do remember thinking that even in third, fourth, fifth grade, when, when, you know, the, the male mind is a little slower to get their emotional connectivity going. But I do remember seeing that and thinking about that. Or, wow, look how happy they are when Warren brings home all these amazing grades and all these awards and stuff. And I'm barely passing classes. I do think, I remember thinking to myself, I don't feel like working that hard. I don't feel like going after that, but I am jealous of it. I am comparing myself to the recognition and the pride they feel in him. And that's why another one of Kluger's points is this de-identification process. So since Warren had such amazing academic and musical ability so quickly, the two things my dad was best at, it made sense that not only did I have some natural athletic ability, but that I would go full 1000% into my athletics. Right. And so I had some natural aptitude and ability, and then here's a spot to carve my niche because my dad wasn't a great athlete. My mother wasn't a great athlete. Warren wasn't a great athlete. He had great teams, but he wasn't a great athlete. And so boom, I could find my spot. So de-identifying, de-identification. So instead of identifying with your older sibling, you go in the different direction. You're going to go find your niche. Mm -hmm. Right. So I like that term. I think it's really useful. And your examples are exactly what we saw. And it was interesting when we've talked about birth order just as a family, you know, having three of us, we have each of those er- birth orders represented. And for anyone who's curious, if they're a bunch of middle kids, then you're all middle kids. But another point that it bears speaking to right now, even though I'm the youngest, because I'm the first girl, I'll have a couple oldest traits. And that's just because when you're the first of a gender in your family, you're going to have, you're going to embody some of those traits. Yeah. That's why I used to, you, you might not remember this because you were pretty young when I would call myself rerun because I thought Warren was the first son. You were the first daughter. I was the rerun. I was not as important, not as much identification. Not, and again, I'm so, too young. I wasn't training to be a psychologist already. <laughs> right. I was a troubled young man with a ton of energy and a love for people. I still had that still, but it was just funny. So it's interesting when you think of those. And, and the research, again, that Kluger shared that I put on the notes to our team, he said the number one bond between parents and children is a mom with the oldest son and the father with the youngest daughter. And we saw that in our family for sure as well. So then again, where's mine? Right. Right. That's, that's how I would view that, even though I didn't know that growing up. I didn't feel that necessarily. 
Now, again, because I am highly emotional and very, very open, I did find strong connection with both mom and dad. With dad, it was challenging him and choosing to fight with him and argue about sometimes stupid things, but just to make him engage with me. And with mom, I was an open book about dating and relationships where you and Warren wouldn't tell them nothing. Mm -hmm. And I'd go tell her everything, <laughs> even when she didn't want to hear it. So I found <laughs> ways to identify with each parent differently. But I do remember very specifically feeling, hey, dad's got Karen, mom's got Warren. I guess I got Tigger the cat. <laughs> Tigger was an awesome cat. Tigger was an amazing cat. So you could have done way worse than We could have talked about pet bonds because Tigger was important for me. You, you brought know, home so Leah we, too. And you I brought did. home Tommy. Didn't you? I brought you? home all and the stray cats. Never, I brought well, them all. Yeah. And Tigger slept in my sock drawer, right? We have those, those fun bonds and ate cereal with me. That's a little gross. We won't freak the listeners out. But the point is the research that Kluger was sharing was like so identifiable, not only to me as psychologist, yeah. but for our own family. It was like, holy cow, this was huge. And Kluger had four sons. I mean, he had, there was four boys and he was the second. So he talks a little bit about in his, his TED talk about being a middle and mm -hmm. recognizing. Now, I don't know the story of his brothers yet, but I'm going to go find out. I want to read about that. And our producer, yeah. Tim, is the oldest of four boys. So we've talked to him many times about the brother relationships there as well and what that looks like. Because yeah. it is a different dynamic if there's no girls in the house or if there's no boys in the house. Right. That does give a whole different vibe in that context. And often when there's parental wounds, significant father wounds and mother wounds for a family dynamic, the sibling bond can heal and restore many of those, even if you can't get them totally repaired with your parent. Yeah. Because when you sit down, you honestly are open with each other and say, hey, here's the reality about our dad. Here's the reality about our mom. We got to accept them, love them and forgive them still, but we can't, we can no longer expect from them the things that we would want to expect and even have a right to expect if they mm -hmm. haven't been able to do that their whole 15, 20, 30, 40 years of being our parent. Therefore, as brothers, as sisters and family together, let's kind of not try to replace mom and dad, but let's try to heal and grow and restore and make sure we're giving to each other mm -hmm. that positivity, that acceptance, that love, that encouragement. In a way, it'll become parental. And the firstborn in that dynamic is almost always going to be a subparent automatically. Mm -hmm. It's just going to happen through nature, through nurture, and probably through the identified need that they see Mm -hmm. even if it's subconsciously and they're going to start parenting the rest of the kids. And that speaks to another point that Kluger makes, which is that the sibling bond is more real and honest than usually all other relationships you have in your life, full stop. So that honesty that you can have that you spoke to a moment ago, on the flip side, that real and raw honesty can be mm -hmm. the source of a lot of pain. It's funny because not to get into the details of it because I want to maintain their privacy and respect, but Liv and Paige yesterday were in the kitchen and it was something that Paige had said to Livy that was probably raw and honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then Livy didn't take it well. And then Paige says, well, you're too sensitive. <laughs> and then Livy says, well, that's just who I am. Right, I was wired so this it. way. So it was a very good example of two sisters who are a year apart is all. And probably are the most honest with each other than any other person on the planet. Absolutely. And both and, training, training to be social workers and psychologists and just right. going at it. But going at it in a way that's, dang, you're speaking this thing that's probably true, but I don't want to hear it and it hurts. And probably even though they have other friends and other relationships and of course family, but they're probably the most raw and honest with each other. Absolutely. And that's why it's also more vulnerable. Because right, we talked about this, I can, you could give me a certain look still today, it would trigger such response 
of anger and frustration, fist, face, mouth, and some of these other ones you used to do that would just drive me nuts, right? And I can say certain things to Warren that can get under his skin instantly that people won't even know I did get under his skin because they don't know the context of what that means, just like we can do in marriage, right? Once you've been married to someone 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you know you can say something just a very subtle way, certain tone, certain words, certain phrases, and immediately ignite <laughs> dramatic response anger, sadness, whatever it would be. And I think the sibling one's even more powerful because you've had your entire life, you know everything pretty much through story, experience, connection, relationship. Entire life of picking on each other and... The rawness, the vulnerability. Carrying that into current day relationship. I remember before Dan, a couple of years before Dan, I dated this guy and he would pick on me, which I'm sure to him was like flirting the way that like in third grade, a boy would pull yeah. your pigtail to get your attention. But I never liked that. And he would needle me, like make fun of something I said because he thought I was using slang that was goofy. Who knows what it was? And I just remember this feels like I'm being picked on by my older brothers. I don't mm -hmm. like it. So in that right. sense, there was that dynamic that you spoke to a little bit earlier where I knew what it felt like and I didn't want that in my romantic mm -hmm. partner. And I knew what it felt like to have a volatility when you and I would scrap. I knew that the flip side of that was really fun. We would play hard too. Mm -hmm. Like we fought hard and we played hard and got on Warren's nerve. And that was like our little dyad where we're like, ha ha ha, we're silly. And he'd be like, be cool, just be cool. And we'd be like, no, we want to be goofy. <laughs> but I knew going into a romantic partnership, I didn't want that level of, mm -hmm. I didn't want to be picked at. I didn't want to be teased in that way. And I didn't want that high level of scrappiness, which is interesting because you looked for that. You want to mm -hmm. have a little scrap here and there. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And that's my dyad with almost all of my primary bond relationships, right? Well, Who pushes mom pick. the most still, right? Who yeah. pushes mom the most? Who pushes dad you, the most? You do that to make her laugh now when she gets Both. It up. is both though. It is, it's trying to, again, help her understand. I know you. I love you. I understand you. And yes, if you're, if you are going into fear mode or fatalism mode, I'm going right. to pick in a humorous way, but also remind her, no need for that. I'm, I'm returning yeah. to her what she did for us, right? Right. Believing in us even when I didn't believe in myself, right? I'm doing the same when she's getting that mode too. Yeah, when she starts getting into worry mode, I go, my mom taught me to have faith in God. That's and right. in the Bible, it says, what do we worry? We pray. <laughs> yeah. I'm that's like, right. that's what my mom taught me. And then she cracks up. So, yeah. yeah and both our parents came from, both our parents came from, as if anyone's bought the book Simon Says or read it, the book I wrote about my, my father and that Warren and Karen contributed to. We talk about they both came from significantly wounded family backgrounds. So, again, they do have some vulnerabilities and fragilities. They did, my dad and my mom still does. Based on that, even though they did a ton of healing, a ton of growth and then providing systemic for us to not have the parental wound, but we still have some sibling wounds to work through because that's just the nature of sibling relationship. I'm not sure, Karen, there can be any long-term sibling connection unless you were like 15 years older than your sibling or 10 years older. So like by the time you're in late high school, they're just the other ones just getting into elementary school. I'm not sure you can grow up two, three, four years apart and not have some wounds. It's just too raw, too much dynamic, too much comparison, too much competition. And that's maybe even more particular than father-mother wounds. There might be more regulatory wounding in the sibling dynamic, even though it's accepted. Like anytime parents you know, might say, oh yeah, my daughters fight once my boys fight, no one would say, oh really? That's strange. No, we all know siblings right. fight. <laughs> that stat Cougar gave about kids yeah. from two to eight, siblings from two to eight years old 
fight once every nine minutes <laughs> or something. It was, oh, it was nine no, times they, an hour, nine times yeah. an hour. Yeah. Yep. I think it was once every 6.5 minutes or something. And it seems hysterical. And until you've been a parent, you've watched siblings fight over stupid stuff every single six minutes, but it, it is a reality. And I think that's to normalize that is helpful for parents who are like, why do my kids hate each other? <laughs> They're siblings. They're going to do this. This is normal. And they're fighting for that identity, fighting for their space, fighting for who am I? Possession. How do I like compare to my parents? And and fairness is another point that you put down from the TED Talk. And you said it, that children's fairness response lights up in the brain in the same place, in the same lobes as disgust. Yeah, that was one of the last points Cluter yeah. made on this TED Talk, which I got to investigate more. Yeah. Because I just got finished listening to it this morning. It was so good. I was like, oh, I wish I had another two hours. It was just so good. And he talked about what they recognized then is that this lack of fairness thing really locks into our emotions. So it could be our sense of justice. You know, some kids are going to sure. be much more about right and wrong, black and white, but it also keys into our emotional stability, our emotional well-being. And so they, they've done some of that research about the way the kid looks when they look disgusted. Often it's in a parental realm. My brother's getting something I should have and I'm not. My sister's getting this and, and that whole fairness piece. And my daughters talk about that all the time to, to each other most of the time. It's not fair that dad gave you this, or it's not fair that mom does this for you and not me, right? All that kind of stuff. So it's definitely mm -hmm. woven into that sibling dynamic. Disgust is one of those primal emotions because we, if we see something disgusting, that's why we can't look at something mm -hmm. like horrific, like a traffic ac accident. Some people are like rubberneckers or what. <laughs> gapers delay can happen, but most people have to avert their gaze from something that's too disgusting. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering it, like when I think about that, there's a parallel there with fairness, that fairness is such a part of survival in a sense. I have to prove that I also deserve this because yeah. if I don't, I'm going to be the child who doesn't get what I should get. And that's going to impact whether it's love, whether it's space, whether it's my share of the pie, then I could die. It yeah, could be and, that and, kind of primordial. And, and it makes me think quickly to, it's related, not complete the same, but large families. So we're talking five, six, seven, eight kids. There's almost always a kid that feels lost. Sure. Feels like I don't, I can't even de-identify from anybody right. else. They tend to be in the middle somewhere. And where they're like, man, I just, I almost feel like my entire existence was just helping everyone else be okay. Mm. And, and being met in, the, met in the middle there somehow. And so I've counseled many women in particular from large families where they really feel trapped about, I'm not 100% sure who I am separately from this sibling role. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of birth order stuff and they give a lot of names and titles to what the kids' roles would be, family heroes and scapegoats and lost child and rebels mm -hmm. and those things. Some really great research out there about that. But I think that does tie into an automatic wound. If you feel kind of lost in your family, like you don't have your part, you don't have your role, you don't have your place, that's a gigantic wound, even if no one's been super mean to you. Right. And you're going to often likely then escape and just leave the entire family dynamic to go find yourself in some capacity, or maybe individuate so strongly, you don't even really identify with your family. I think, yeah, I was born in there and that's where I lived, but I don't talk to any of them. We would say that that's not a healthy individuation because you no, haven't renegotiated the bonds in adulthood. Unless you felt that's the only thing you could do for your own safety, your own growth, your own development. And sometimes that's going to be through a abusive or wounded parental system, but sometimes it won't be. But family systems theory, we don't advocate for the cutoff. We Yeah, we're not I, recommending this by any means. 
No, I was going to say, unless it's there was severe abuse and you had to, yeah. it was just such a sick and twisted and toxic family system. But in general, if it was just, you felt lost, you couldn't find your role in the family to separate for a time to find yourself and then right. to try to reestablish on an adult level, those bonds with mother, father, siblings would be ideal because otherwise we can get stuck where we mm -hmm. left. We've never come back to that with our adult sensibilities. And so we could still be stuck and say you felt lost and confused as to who you are. Now you're going to carry that dynamic into the workplace. And you're going to probably have a hard time figuring out your role professionally. You're going to carry that to your friendship groups. You're going to have a hard time finding your role in your friendship groups because you haven't healed it. Yeah. And often these perceptions of the parental or sibling wounds are different for each child. And so sometimes one who escapes or leaves you know, separates, isolates, severs, has a perception of the family system that others might not have. And so again, sure. I'm not advocating for it or promoting it, but I think it, it can often happen. And again, when we are starting to build romantic relationships within these dynamics, asking each other about family of origin and life is appropriate once you're getting to the point of commitment and, and you just got to oh, yeah. talk through them. It doesn't mean you're like, oh my goodness, my boyfriend has a massive sibling wound, so I'm done with him. I, I'm, that's not the case at all. It's just walking through these things and talking through them. Yeah, and observing. Mm -hmm. Because even those questions, if you ask them, sometimes someone may respond with the, their vantage point, but you might observe at Thanksgiving your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, and go, huh, she said this was going on with her brother, but I don't really see that. I see. So just to be aware and when you, when I remember being younger and when you go home, when you meet your boyfriend's parents, watch how he treats his mother. Yeah. That's the classic that's he'll probably treat you in a similar manner. And we're saying also the sisters mm -hmm. and also female cousins, if they are close and those sorts of and, things. And not like you ignore the brothers or dads either, but you're really looking for that gendered dynamic. Our satisfaction and joy in life is directly related to our satisfaction and joy in our relationships. Elliot and I are here to help. We'd love to design a workshop, seminar, or weekend retreat for your organization. We'll bring the psych research, of course, along with over 60 years of combined experience in psychotherapy. We'll share science-based therapeutic techniques within the context of a Christian worldview. We can level up in our relationships. Contact our producer, Tim May, at tim at loveandlifemedia.com to book us. Yeah, so we have said, let's be much more aware, shine the light on the sibling dynamics from family of origin and in our current times. Take a look at it, consider it, examine it. That might be a pain point that you haven't really been aware of. Also, be sure to be observing, like we said a moment ago, not just the role that your fiance or that your boyfriend, girlfriend has with the opposite sex parent, but also opposite sex siblings, cousins, and so forth. And Elliot, any other practical applications, any takeaways for the listener? Yeah, I think one thing that I believe would be challenging if you're listening, you're like, mm, I think I definitely have a sibling wound. Your sibling might not think so. They might not be honest and open about their wounding like I was mm. to you or Warren has been to me, right? We've been open about those things as, as siblings, but not all siblings will be. And so addressing that can be pretty sensitive. I wouldn't necessarily use the word wound. I would probably just bring out dynamic about, hey, I was reflecting on us as brothers and sisters when we were young, how we used to be mean to each other. And 
attack each other. I try to use it in the we language and a plural language. Yep. I mean, if it's just really blatant, abusive behavior, it's going to be hard not to call it. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's even just words that were used or phrases that were used or mean that was done, shaming that was done. And it might have been fairly subtle, but so consistent that it damaged. Just trying to bring it up in an adult way, healthy way. Probably best if you're all married, not to do it with the par- the spouses right away, to do it really in the bloodline together, just sibling, sibling first. Then if it needs a little extra covering or extra layering, certainly bring in the spouses especially if they're united and have great relationships already also. But it, it might be, you know, depending on what that relationship looks like, it might be better done in a restaurant somewhere just casually so it keeps it kind of general, not super, super intense, like, hey, I need you to come to my office and can you book like four hours? <laughs> you know, you don't right. want to maybe freak somebody out right away, but just a general conversation. And it might not be the first time you're talking about it that you just say, hey, I, you know what, there's a wound here that I, I needed to address that happened with between me and you. Now, if you're the one who's done the wounding, like I did, and recognized it, I think you can be a little more assertive to reach out to your sibling and say, hey, I just want to make sure you know I'm really sorry. You know, I was really mean. I was really over the top. The way I hit you, yelled at you, pulled your hair, whatever. To get that out, yes, I think way more assertive if you're the one who did the wounding. But if you were wounded, I'm saying to casually and, and shape it, pace it, to bring those conversations out, especially if that relationship is still not in a context of health and not in a context of beneficial positivity, but you feel you need to address it, you're just gonna wanna be a little bit careful about that. If there's multiple siblings, again, I'm not encouraging gang up two against one or three against one, or again, it's always gonna be better to do one-on-one first. Then if you need to get the others involved, that's great too. Yeah, and I think as you speak, I think we should probably do a follow-up episode on sibling woundedness when there's deep woundedness, like incest or yeah, sexual it's much abuse. bigger layer. Right. Because I think someone could hear this and go, yeah, that happened to me. And that my brother violated me in that way. And that healing process is a lot different. Exactly. And then I would just, as the youngest, and you keep sharing about how like you were mean to me for a while, but I would also say if we can go through that healing and it's easier for me to do that now because you have from an adult level said, Hey, I'm sorry. That was just, I was, that's where I was. And I'm so sorry. You didn't deserve that. You were just trying to be loving little sister. And then I found my ways to antagonize you too, of course. And that was my, those little faces you mentioned earlier. Those were like my only recourse because I certainly couldn't beat you up. I couldn't outrun you. I couldn't win any of the physical disputes that we would have. But also looking back, am I scrappier? Probably. Am I a little tougher? Probably. Am I glad that I learned to be mouthy because I, like I said, I couldn't win any physical competition, but I could run my mouth. (laughs) So maybe trying to make peace also Mm -hmm. with how, and we know that this is part of just growing and making peace with our experiences. Is there any layer of that we can look at as well? Probably wouldn't have chosen to acquire that characteristic this way, but be that as it may, I am thankful that I'm able to speak my mind and have strong opinions. And probably part of that was because I had to yell at you and warn all the time. (laughs) Yeah. And and to put a little theological twist on the ending here, the very first murder (laughs) in scripture, I'm sorry to laugh, but it's two brothers. Yeah. So the, the pain of the brother and sister sibling relationship is so evident in scripture immediately. And then it's throughout the whole Bible different comparisons, how Joseph is treated by his brothers, ashamed and abused, and God flips that 
Jacob and Esau and their comparison of fighting as twins. And, and then in the New Testament, when Jesus is hiring his disciples, he's appointing his disciples and bringing them in, he gets two sets of brothers. Out of the 12, grabs two sets of brothers. So there's a, there's a healing, redemptive piece there in the sibling relationship to me. And he calls James and John the sons of thunder. They're, they have this like playful, affectionate nickname. And my middle name's James and Morn is John. And whether mom and dad meant that specifically, because that's both <laughs> relatives' names, whether they meant that specifically or not, it's pretty cool in the redemptive piece that Warren and I are both pastors and teachers and, and shepherds of people. And, and that's a cool context to end on. I like it. All right, let me pray for our listeners. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to talk about siblings, talk about the benefits, the positivity, the connection, the establishment of lifelong relationships. We pray, Lord, for healing. If there's wounds, we pray, Lord, for connection, love. We pray for encouragement, inspiration. Lord, if listeners are recognizing sibling dynamics, sibling woundedness is impacting their relationships, or even the romantic relationships, that they'd identify that, recognize that, and work on steps individually to heal, and then also with siblings if it's safe and there's an opportunity of openness and blessing there. We recognize, Lord, that this life is difficult. The context of being in a family dynamic leads lots of opportunities for hurt, pain, shame, fighting, arguing, and Lord, sometimes even significant things that are way beyond just an argument or one wrestling match. So we pray, Lord, for any listeners that have been triggered a little bit by this reality, that they would feel comfort and peace. And as Karen shared, there would be some even identification of some positivity, even amidst that pain. And we pray, Lord, for that blessing and healing. Amen. Amen. Thank you, as always, for joining us today. It means so much to Elliot and me, and we really appreciate you being part of the Love and Life family. Be sure to head over to our website so you can join our newsletter. We send out a weekly bit of info, just letting you know what's on the podcast and providing a couple other little perks for the insiders. We're here to help us all align our mind, body, and spirit. For empowered relationships. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.